Welcome to this Practical Neurology podcast, which is part of our feature looking at the intersection between neurology and crime writing. I'm Harriet Vickers, Assistant Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Oliver Sachs, who um, I'm sure needs no introduction, but he's a physician, author and Professor of Neurology at the NYU School of Medicine, and also a visiting professor at the University of Warwick. So, Professor Sachs, good morning. Good morning. In Andrew Lees and Peter Kempster's article, you're slightly different from the other neurologists that they talk about because you publish case histories and and they're likening you to um, these case histories being like detective stories and and your methods being being like a detective's, whereas the others are, are writing detective fiction. So is this how you think of yourself? For me, my medium is the case history and it always has been. Um, some of my models are 19th century models. I love the great Victorian and French case histories. My case histories often start like one of Sherlock Holmes' cases. There's a knock at the door. Um, comes. There's a phone call. There's an incident like this which introduces the patient to their problems. And certainly, implicitly, I've always thought there was a considerable similarity between um, a a case study and hopefully the solution of the the mystery, although it's going to be a medical mystery, a neurological mystery rather than a crime one. My mentor, in a way, uh, Alexander Romanovich Luria in Russia, um, also had this feeling very strongly. And when we were in correspondence, he told me that he had read hundreds of detective stories. He loved Edgar Wallace. So uh, what are the skills that you think that you have that are particularly like a detective's? Well, I am observant, I hope. Often the observation starts before the person opens their mouth. I observe the way they come in, Mm. stand, the way they sit. I observe them, I examine them. I always get as detailed a history of their problems as I can, and to expand out from this into into something of a biography, so I know what sort of life these people are having. I'm interested in the effect of a change on their lives and not, not just the diagnosis. I think diagnosis is often easy. I tend to make brief notes when I talk with patients, and I then usually I would often go out to the botanical garden, which was just opposite my hospital, and put put things out of my mind and look at the plants. But when I would come back an hour later, um, somehow my ob- everything would have turned into a narrative, which I could then write fluently. So um, there's a minute observation at one end and a narrative as a form. So, so that's the way you organise your thoughts, is it? You you put that case into a narrative and that helps you come to the diagnosis? Well, I want to say the thoughts organise themselves. Right. I, I, I often feel this is partly unconscious because I, um, I'm often thinking of other things and then the narrative comes up for me, which, which does not avoid pathos and, and drama and some of what one might have in a novel, if that's appropriate, to some extent, I think of my case histories as non-fiction novellas or short stories, and at times even detective stories. 
curiously, just in the last fortnight, I've um, written up a couple of case histories which have a rather explicit mystery because they both have to do with poisoning by, by heavy metals. Uh, and it turns out that poisoning by heavy metals is the unexpected solution of a puzzling clinical syndrome. Right. Yes, I was talking to um, to Chris Gertz, who, who used to work with Harold Clowens, and he was saying that uh, a lot of his stories actually came out of the, the diagnosis that he wished it would be. So, you know, he'd go away and write the story about someone being poisoned when actually it was something more mundane in real life. So were these the, the cases where you felt most like a detective? Was there any one knock on the door where you, you felt your, um, your powers of, of reasoning and observation were really uh, tested? Um, somewhat, yes. I, I mean, I, I like to test them with intervals because um, I'm, I'm 80 now and I'm afraid, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm as sharp as I was. I, I read that you, you've likened yourself to, to a naturalist. You say you're, you're half naturalist and half physician. Do you think that's a, a better analogy than, than detective? I guess one thing that, that troubles me about the detective analogy is that, um, like you were saying, that the, the diagnosis and the, the solving of the case isn't actually the end. And often you can't treat or cure your patients. You can only manage them and help them um, adapt to, to life with their condition. I, I used to have a passion for marine biology and botany and natural history, and it's, it's still there. Gowers himself... Um, Sometimes I think used to compare seeing patients to being in a, a tropical rainforest. I think one of the reasons I like to extend my inquiries is I, I want to know the natural history of someone's life. But then as a physician, you, you focus in on the individual and the impact of whatever's happening, how they may respond, how they can adapt, how they can maintain their identity. In natural history, on the whole, you're not dealing with individuals, you're dealing with, with populations. Mm. But I, 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 I mean, both, I think, both sort of have to inform one's, one's writing and one's attitude. Mm. Something else I read in The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat about the moment of discovery being a therapeutic moment for the patient, which I thought was interesting because it, you weren't saying that... Um, this was, uh, you know, an important professional moment for you and you felt, you know, relief of working yeah. out, you, you know, what, what was going on, that actually the, it was a therapeutic moment for the patient. Could you um, tell me a bit more about that? Um, yes, well, I think this came to me and I describe it in a story I call On the Level. Um, and this was about a man with Parkinson's and obviously rather poor postural reflexes and when he walked, he was rather tilted over to one side. And I, I said this to him, and he said, no, I'm not tilted over to one side. I then videoed him, showed him a video, and he was thunderstruck. He said, yes, I am tilted. And then he wondered why he was tilted. He wondered whether some of the um, mechanisms which keep one upright had been damaged in him, and he wondered whether he could make something external to compensate for the internal loss. And in fact, he cleverly designed a sort of spirit level 
which was fixed to his glasses, and he could see this bubble, and so long as he kept, kept the bubble in the center, he could walk upright. And so then the moment of seeing that he was tilted was a breakthrough for him. It was exciting for him, rather frightening, but it also led him to devise a solution for himself. Mm. And that stays in my mind. And, and also for another reason that um, one talks about the doctor-patient relationship, which can take so many forms. But here, in a sense, the two of us were collaborators. So is that where all the the satisfaction comes from from making a diagnosis and and solving the mystery from from seeing how it benefits the patients you there isn't a small party that gets some intellectual kick from putting these clues together and solving the mystery um, i mean i can't deny there may be a sort of exaltation sometimes um in making a diagnosis or recognizing a particular phenomenon though again i want to say this for me often will be shared with a patient if it can be constructive. You know, I mentioned in The Man Who Mistook how the day after seeing a patient with Tourette syndrome, I thought I saw three people with it in the streets of New York. And I was staggered and I thought I must have been seeing people like this all my life and just ignored them or thought they were nervous. But now I know what they have and there's a sense of discovery, uh, though also a sense that these people might recognize each other and form a Tourette Syndrome Association, which in fact is exactly what happened. Mm. But there is a sometimes a, a joy in solution and diagnosis, even if it's, if it's a terrible diagnosis. The era of clinical case histories was more in the the 19th century and you know today today we're told it's all about randomized controlled trials and metrics and biomarkers so i just wondered if you thought that doctors perhaps slightly poo-pooed case histories and um if you thought we'd lost something by kind of pushing them to the back of the evidence cupboard i do think that and i know luria thought that and I, I always go back to reading sort of Charcot's case histories or Desjardins or, or other 19th century ones. But somehow, I hope, adding sort of 20th, 21st century knowledge and concepts to them. For example, I've just, just got excited about iron channels. And <laughs> I'm wondering how I can somehow integrate these into things. Actually, they've come in as a footnote in my case of possible thallium poisoning because the thallium ion is exactly the same size as a potassium ion and it can sort of uh, play havoc with the potassium channels and that's why it's so dangerous. If you look through most neurology journals now, as you say, they're, they're full of series of one sort or another. I think these series are very valuable, but they shouldn't displace case histories. One couldn't have established, say, the relationship of smoking and cancer without looking at a huge population, thousands, tens of thousands of patients over many years, that you had to have a population study there. And you have to have such studies for, for genetics and epidemiology. But I just um, want case histories to be equally valued, and, and neither can replace the other. What was the, the reaction um, to 
awakenings and um, your migraine book from from doctors and academics. My migraine book was still fairly close to the medical canon, and um, and and got quite some nice medical reviews. In fact, a particularly nice one in the BMJ. But when awakenings came out. Um, there was a very strange gulf between um, all sorts of literary reviews and a complete absence of any medical notice, um, as if I had done something sort of beyond the pale or, or out of bounds or, or maybe not, not interesting or, or not believable. Um, I, I was very taken aback by this. Um, and I was glad that Luria among others, gave me some support. I'd been very much inspired by one of his books called The Mind of an Eminist, which uh, came out in 68. I, I actually started reading this, the first 15 or 20 pages. I thought it was a novel. And then I realized it was a case history and the most detailed and deep and beautiful I'd ever read. Um, although the huge sort of factual weight of it was was balanced by a sort of a sensibility and uh, and attacked which you know which was which was equally important and um, I think now awakenings and some of my other things are accepted I was very pleased when my latest book got, got reviewed in brain I mean I think finally I'm, I'm being accepted as a an odd but precious part of the medical establishment. Did you did you not have doctors writing to you or whispering your ear, ear in parties though? Well, you know, thank you so much for that clinical tip and, you know, in that study I went and used that. Did you get any feedback that way? What I like most are sort of people coming to me, sometimes grey-bearded people. I'm white-bearded, but um, they're saying they, um, they read The Man Who Mistook when, um, uh, as a teenager or whatever, and it decided them to go into medicine or neuroscience. And then I realised that I... I have had some good effect. Well, there's no greater compliment than that, really, is there? Yeah, very much so. And, and so I think after, after, after years, even some decades of discomfort, I sort of feel I'm, I'm on good terms with the profession again. Fantastic. Well, that, that sounds like a good note to end on. Um, so, Oliver, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. Okay, well, thank you very much. <laughs>